Climate Watch is CGTN Radio's new podcast focusing on the impact of climate change. We have conversations with people on the front line about this critical issue. Listen to Climate Watch on all major podcast platforms and join us in taking action to save the planet we call home. Beyond the, Beyond the Headlines, this is World Insight. Hello and welcome to World Insight with me, Tian Wei. As global warming takes its toll on the planet, human survival, our very own fate, depends on a rapid shift to clean and renewable energy. But that great transition acts for important support from tech innovation, efficient global supply chains, and serious international cooperation. Yet all these are facing tremendous challenges as our world changes. So here's my latest interview with Borge Brande, president of the World Economic Forum, who visited China recently as the world leaders gather for the G20 summit and COP28 later this year. So what does it take to bring the world together again? Here's my interview with him. Beijing this time greeted me so well with blue skies uh, for several days. And it's incredible to see how fast China has uh, transformed when it uh, comes to also, for example, renewable energy. In a few years, China has become the superpower of the renewables. And uh, today, renewables is more than 40% of the electricity production of uh, China. That's more than what's produced by coal. So that's uh, a very uplifting news. So China already have become the largest producer of renewable energy and also the user of it. What does that mean for the rest of the world? So President Xi Jinping's vision uh, that has been laid out is that uh, China should uh, peak when it comes to CO2 emissions by no later than 2030 and net zero by 2060. But what is uh, really happening now is that uh, you see that uh, green energy, renewables, is growing so fast, uh, both uh, solar but also wind. And as you said, China has not only no manufacturing windmills and solar panels, it's also the fastest one walking the talk. So there is uh, so much renewable energy coming in. Of course, also over time, uh, the phasing out of uh, coal is important, but one also has to understand that uh, you have to balance in the electricity system so you don't have blackout. You know that solar and wind cannot today be stored in huge batteries because it's too expensive. So you have to balance this either with hydropower, nuclear, or with coal. So hopefully there will be break uh, breakthroughs also on the battery side in the years to come. So the renewable uh, proportion can go from 40 to maybe 70, 80%. Mm. Earlier this week, uh, the great news is that the hydropower uh, park in China has been established in Xinjiang. Having said that though, uh, what is the picture in terms of timetable are you looking at globally, particularly after participating in the CSET meeting? So uh, there is a big growth in renewable energy globally. It's not going as fast as we would like because our planet uh, is on fire. And if there is a fire, you have to uh, also move fast to deal with it. But uh, one of the things that are also uh, on the positive side is that the price for renewables have fallen so dramatic. Ten years ago, uh, the price of solar was ten times what it is today. Ten years ago, the price of wind was seven times. And then you had to subsidize it. Today, solar 
is probably the cheapest way of producing electricity in many parts of the world. So it competes uh, uh, much better than, for example, coal, even natural gas, LNG. So this is uh, incredible uh, positive news. But of course, uh, the solar works best when there is sun, and the wind works best when there is wind. So we also have to balance this. So that we have to have other energy sources too. That's why I think you know, doubling down on green hydrogen and also other uh, energy sources like, for example, fusion uh, when it comes to nuclear, but also fourth generation nuclear plants that China is also planning uh, is uh, of uh, big interest because there, there is no danger of a meltdown because it's in a black box. So if there is no electricity, you will not see the kind of meltdown as you saw in Fukushima that caused this uh, terrible, terrible catastrophe. Meanwhile, there is an issue of raw materials. As we know, many of these renewable energies will be produced with components that are made of special materials. It is true that some of the rare materials, including rare earth, but also uh, lithium, that is very important in battery uh, production. There is not enough of these minerals currently uh, at uh, our disposal. But there are resources out there, so I just think we have to really move faster uh, in developing this, because I hope that that will not be the thing that stops uh, the development of the new uh, renewables. Because we need energy for development. You know, there's 800 million people on this planet that don't even have access to electricity. We can't say to them, oh, you cannot have electricity and put on the lights so your children can read at night. That's not an option. We also have to make sure that we eradicate poverty with energy, but we have to decouple that from growth in CO2. And then there is no other way than rolling out uh, the renewables and to roll out solar panels, wind, and etc. We also need battery capacities, storing capacities, and then we need those minerals. So we have to really, really share this and we have to collaborate. We have to just uh, think win-win and not zero-sum gun. Mm. At this point, of course, it's difficult because uh, of the leftovers of the pandemic and also geopolitics, just to name a few. So from your perspective, how to constructively get things done? So the big paradox uh, these days is that because of the global fragmentation, and uh, there is so much competition between countries and also polarization is that even on those things we really really need to collaborate there is a lack of collaboration because those problems that really are the toughest ones we are faced with travel across borders without the passport a possible new pandemic doesn't travel with a passport co2 emission and greenhouse gases don't travel with a passport that shows that we're all in it together if we're not acting accordingly, we are more now looking at uh, how we can decouple, how we can then uh, also find uh, then uh, negative sides with each, each other. And that is not going to bring prosperity. Also on the trade side, there's so much we can do together. And uh, we have seen for decades after decades that when we trade with each other, it also creates prosperity. Of course, you can adjust a bit and say you want to secure your supply chains and all this. But let's not lose the baby with the bathwater because then we're losing also growth. 
prosperity and uh, collaboration. Do you think we can be as stupid as forgetting about the benefits that trade has brought to us? I don't think we can totally exclude it. But let's now use common sense. But sometimes I have the feeling that common sense is not that common anymore. It's an interesting comment you just made. Having said that, talking about trade, we see uh, the interaction between China and the United States over the past uh, few months. We have seen three uh, ministers level visit together with some special envoy level as well. So how do you see, including the latest one from uh, Commerce Secretary uh, Raimondo in China, how do you see these kind of interactions could send signals to the rest of the world about our economy, about the potential that we can still live in peace? I think things look uh, a bit better now between the G2, China and the US being more than 40% of the global economy. A lot is at stake and the visits uh, from uh, Secretary uh, Blinken, also from uh, Secretary Yellen, and also Secretary Kerry, and now with uh, Secretary also Raimondo here, we are at least seeing that uh, China and US is talking together. I don't think they agree uh, on everything, that's for sure. But this notion of total decoupling that someone uh, raised a few years ago, I think is no left. It's not, not the choice. No, it's, it's not the choice. Uh, of course, there are other notions like de-risking and uh, French shoring and etc. But the World Economic Forum has also looked at the cost of uh, decoupling. If we were to decouple, uh, it would cost us 8% maybe of the global GDP. That is worse than the worst depression ever. That would lead uh, to a lot of poverty and also a lot of uh, people like would lose uh, their livelihood. But today I think we're seeing more and uh, adjustment of uh, this and uh, I think it's good that the US and, and, uh, and China is talking together. What we probably would see though is that most of the trade, US-China uh, trading 700 billion US dollars together uh, annually will continue but there will be some areas on very advanced semiconductors technology but also products of dual use civil and uh, defense that maybe will not be traded but as long as 90-95% of the trade uh, can continue uh, that's not that bad but for China uh, this is a challenging moment in the sense that we also see that the consumption patterns are changing in many of the important export countries. Because just during the pandemic, we bought TVs, we bought furnitures, everything that uh, was like commodities. But now after the pandemic, people want to travel, they want to go to the theater, there's an increase in the services. And of course, services as an export and import is also growing, but China is the manufacturing hub of the world. So in addition to some of uh, the um, kind of uh, so-called risk handling, de-risking means that some of it is, goes to Mexico, Vietnam, and India. But, but I'm happy to also share that uh, medium, long term, I'm very bullish, optimistic on behalf of the Chinese economy. How do you see this? Uh apparently global trend of people looking more inward rather than outward. At least that's what some analysts believe. What does that mean for trade and for our interactions, the nature of our interactions in the future? 
So global trade has been also a guarantee for substantial global growth. And, you know, we, we are now in the lowest growth we have seen in a long time, the global growth 3% this year. And uh, if we continue on a strategy of partly decoupling or de-risking, we don't trade with each other, we don't use the comparative advantages uh, in the economy, then we can go into a decade of slow growth. We can repeat the 1970s, and everyone will lose from that. Not only a few nations, everyone will be poorer. So we have to know, take the necessary measures to rebuild trust in the World Trade Organization, rebuild trust in trading with each other, and see that this zero-sum game thinking, that really is an impasse. We have to break this impasse now to create also growth, of course, we have to also go through some structural changes to make this happen. But let's avoid slow growth. Meanwhile, we are also seeing the trend that everybody is trying to build the same thing that everybody else is doing, meaning there will be repetition in global supply chains. How would you compare what we experience in history to what is going on right now? Do we all together have to hit a very hard wall before we stop this? I hope not. And I think there are some silver linings too. I think the breakthroughs on the technology side, not only on artificial intelligence, but also in the Internet of Things, the way we share data, but also when it comes to, for example, the new ways we deal with medicine, synthetic biology, will create so many changes and innovations. Of course, it will kill some jobs, but I think overall it will create more jobs and more interesting jobs. Jobs higher up in the value chain that will pay better salaries. And I think these new technologies uh, will bring us really into the fourth industrial revolution or even the fifth industrial uh, revolution. And that will also increase productivity. And with increased productivity, it's also increased prosperity. And uh, this, I think, is very important for China, too. And I said, uh, medium, long-term, I'm very optimistic on the Chinese economy. And why is that? One is that 11 million students leave universities in China every year. That's a huge, cool huge talents. force for change and innovation. And uh, we also know that uh, China is leading in many of these new technologies that will be so important for increasing productivity in the future. For those that are like hanging in there and say, oh, we don't want change. Of course, uh, we have seen in history that those nations are not doing well. It's those nations that are open for change and embracing the new technologies. Also, of course, the big investments in infrastructure in China that maybe some people say have over-invested, uh, that may be the case, but overall, of course, for a country like China to have world-class infrastructure, speed trains, roads, airports, over time, this will be very, very important. And I also see now that China is uh, diversifying, as you also mentioned, its manufacturing. Also then uh, inviting to more domestic than consumption, but also moving more into also services and services export. High quality growth, yeah. as they say. Yeah, high quality growth, definitely. And we also see that China is now um, making many bilateral trade agreements and regional trade agreements. So 
I think uh, U.S. Uh, is around 15-16% of China's export. Mm -hmm. So there is then 84% uh, of the export goes to other countries. So China will also diversify and find its way. And I think this is now uh, something that is looked at, that there will be structural changes. Structural changes uh, are not necessarily uh, very comfortable, but the alternative is worse because the only way to grow and revive growth is that you invest in the new technologies, in research and development, right. in students, and quality of life. Uh, let me ask you about development. We have seen increasingly the names of Global North and Global South are being emphasized today, particularly after the pandemic. Earlier I was at the BRICS Summit and I have learned something quite interesting from those emerging economies and developing countries, that it is not just infrastructure, but also industrialization that these countries want. Of course, they don't want to go back to the old type industrialization, meaning using tremendous amount of resources, not environmentally friendly, but rather they want to have the different levels of industrialization taking place at the same time because they're developing countries. So how do you see the World Economic Forum, together with your partners around the world, be able to provide more impetus, ideas, synergy, and support to the development issues? No, very important. And there is a fact still that the, that the emerging economies are growing much faster than the industrialized economies, even in this uh, situation that we are today. But it's the leapfrogging that is now important. And for us, it's also uh, very important to underline the importance of digitalization and having digital access. If you have digital access, you can be part of the fourth industrial revolution. If you are in a situation where uh, most of you people don't even have uh, access to affordable internet, you lose- Or even electricity. Yeah and you lose an edge. And uh, there is 3.6 billion people that don't have digital access. And this gap has to be closed very fast. That's why the World Economic Forum has launched with our business partners and different governments this uh, initiative where we want to connect uh, a billion people, the Edison Initiative. Mm -hmm. And we already by this initiative have been part of connecting 400 million people where we work with the private sector. And there are very cost-effective ways of doing this. You can reach millions of millions of people with very low cost. And even if they then get a cell and get connected, if there are many enough, you can drive down the prices if there is competition between the mobile operators and later on also on the internet. We also believe in trade and fair trade when it comes to the global south. That's why the World Economic Forum now work so closely. We have an MOU with the African free trade area, continental free trade area. It's 1.5 billion people. It's the youngest continent on the earth and it's fast growing. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's very little intra-African trade. They trade with the outside, but not so much with each other. China being their biggest uh, trade partner with more than 250 billion uh, US dollars a year uh, in trade. And the only way for these nations to really grow is that they also have things that they produce at home that they can sell abroad. And that manufacturing and also digitalization is at the uh, core of that. And we know that uh, 
also President Xi Jinping will uh, be hosting a very important uh, summit, Belt and Road, uh, here in Beijing uh, in October. And I know the development is at core of that uh, summit. We have seen the Belt and Road being updated. Earlier, it's mainly infrastructure. Yeah and building infrastructure in the developing world uh, together with our partners. But now, it's much more than that. It's about green BRI. But at this moment, funding is important. Uh, so is the, the, the know-how to implement talents as well. So the list of challenges continues. How do you see that we still maintain this aspiration? I think it's very important that China is the second largest economy of the world, 20% of global GDP also take a responsibility for development in other countries. That's what at the core of BRI, that one can also learn from the way China has eradicated poverty. Never in the history of humankind have a country lifted so many people out of poverty in such a short time as China has done. Of course, it's not possible to replicate totally this history, but I think uh, China is showing also increased interest of being a partner with many other countries that are less fortunate than uh, China. And I think uh, China has muscles to do so. There's a lot of focus now on the debt in China is so high. But you know, most of this debt is domestic debt. Very little is external debt. I think we have a tendency of forgetting that. We are seeing uh, in the rest of the year G20 coming up. You were earlier at the B20 engaging with the business community and also later the uh, Belt and Road Initiative, the forum, and at the same time the upcoming APEC, in which leaders uh, of the APEC economies are all likely to gather, including likely China and the United States. Meanwhile, there's also going to be the climate change uh, COP coming up. So one after another important international event. How do you see these events could help us to clarify some of the thoughts that we should have and also some of the important ideas. I think each of them in their own way are very important meetings. The first one will be the G20 meeting hosted in New Delhi by Prime Minister Modi. I know that Prime Minister Modi and President Xi Jinping had very constructive discussions also during the BRICS summit where they agreed on the Chinese idea of letting new countries into BRIC. So, BRIC plus. Yeah, so BRIC plus, and I think this is also good news when it comes to the relationship between India and China that I think is very critical because there is positive for the world that these two big emerging economies, very populous countries, three billion, <laughs> <laughs> almost half of the global population lives uh, in these two countries, that that works out well. And I think the, break, the G20 meeting in Delhi will be important. I also think uh, Belt and Road will be uh, incredibly important. And, uh, APEC meeting, even more so, because we do hope that uh, President Xi Jinping and President Biden can have a really good sit down there maybe even there could be more formal visit from the Chinese president to the US because everyone wants no stability predictability we're paying a high price for the wars and the conflicts and also the lack of trust and uh, we have to build trust also in the run-up to COP28 mm -hmm. that is an important climate uh, meeting in the UAE where we hope that uh, the stock taking that is happening there shows that countries are now complying 
with their commitments they took on uh, in Paris and in Glasgow. I think there will be also big ambitions coming out uh, there in UAE from COP28 when it comes to ambitions on scaling uh, renewables. Maybe we can triple the amount of renewables in the coming decades. Mm -hmm. I think also we know how to deliver Copenhagen in the UAE. We st still probably lacking 15 billion annually what was promised for facilitating investments in renewables and energy transformation in developing countries. In Copenhagen, 15 la years later, we haven't delivered it. So that needs to be delivered. And maybe even more important uh, is the big opportunity in January where we come f together in Davos, in the snow, beginning of the year. Hopefully we can then see 2024 even as a more optimistic year. And under the umbrella of rebuilding global trust. Mm -hmm. I think that's a huge opportunity. We also hope for senior uh, Chinese participation. We have uh, good indications okay. and uh, also after a very successful summer Davos in Tianjin. That's my interview with Borge Brande, president of the World Economic Forum. With that, we're coming to the end of today's program. I'm Tian Wei on behalf of my team, and I'll see you tomorrow.